0: Hi. <laughs> uh. <laughs> wow, you guys rock. <laughs> It's it's such a privilege to be here with all of you, and um, I I'm gonna apologize in advance. Like I'm a weeper, you know. You don't get to pick how the Holy Spirit works in your life. So these gals and and men that were up here too are worshiping their guts out, and I'm. I'm going between wanting to just shout, Jesus, because I'm the old lady at our church that sits on the front during worship and at times will shout, Jesus, and, and I'm going between that and crying and then thinking, oh, I, I, I better save my voice, and so I just thank you, worship team. I'm sure you're out here spread out around, but, you know... I heard this definition of a worship leader once, that is, you're supposed to just lead people to Jesus and then get out of the way, and you do that brilliantly, and I thank you for that. So um, so it's just such a privilege to be here and be with you guys. I, I love you all. They They split our regions, and so I felt like I lost half my peeps, you know? So it's so fun to be here and see so many of you that I know. And... So I just wanted to start at least by giving you a little glimpse into my world, which is the most recent family picture I have that I think they'll split. And there's there's like um, there's now. Let's see, I got to count. There's two grandkids that aren't even in there right now, and then I have another one on the way, May 7th. I told my daughter-in-law when I left, you cannot have that baby while I'm gone. So, um, but. This was uh, for, I don't know, maybe about six years ago. I'm not really sure, but um, I have five boys and one daughter. She's got her hand on my husband there, Alyssa. Uh, I have twins, Josh and Jeremy, the black and the gray uh, sweatshirt. Josh lives in Mexico City. His wife, Vineyard. Uh, uh, donya's in front of him. They p- planted a vineyard church in Mexico City, and and that's my, my gang and my crew out in my front yard, and we haven't all been together for about... Uh, 4 years I think and this summer everybody's coming home and the new baby will be here and I'm determined to get us together for at least a couple snaps you know but um they they just are such a blessing to me and um and just so much fun I love I love Gabriella just looking over like who are those crazy people you know but um and Gabe is is in the back in the red shirt he'll be a little part of my story tonight, but he—he, he, I like to call him just my miracle, the the one that almost got away, but you never give up. You never, ever, ever give up. So that's a teaser, you know, like a trailer before a movie or something. <laughs> Come back tonight. So... I, I want to do something that is a treat for me, so I hope it will be for you. I, I just can't wait to walk through the book of Ruth with you. Um, often on Sunday morning, we teach, and we get 20, 30 minutes, and... and um, and I promise I'm not going to take two hours or anything like that. It sounds scary, but I, I am a grandma too, just like Cindy. And there's something wonderful about just walking through a whole short book of the Bible together and putting ourselves into the story. And so um, I just want to walk through the book of Ruth with you uh, today and um, just in God's grand story. And I hope that you just can put yourself in it and find out where, what what nuggets you have from that. So um, I'm going to walk through Ruth. I'm not going to read it verse by verse. I have the message Bible up here with me. Um, my, most of my notes are in it. Uh, I started a long time ago I read through different translations of the Bible and put my notes in it in hopes that I'll be able to give one of those Bibles to my grandkids one day and, and they'll have grandma's notes in there, you know? And either think she was really rocking or absolutely out of her mind. Either one is okay with me. <laughs> so um, that's kind of where I got this idea, just reading through this, uh, this book and thinking, God has something to state to us through, through Ruth's story today. So... In the message, it starts out in Ruth, and it says, once upon a time, and I love that that's in a Bible, (laughs) because, um, you know, once upon a time, there were these women, and um, at times we feel insignificant, I think, in our lives, or we get lost in just all the details, the gardening, (laughs) or the dishes, or the things that that we have to do, and it's pretty easy just to lose sight of the significance of, each of our lives are. And I've I've titled this message, Irreplaceable, because I hope that's what you come away with this morning, is that your life is irreplaceable in God's grand story. Nobody can take your place in God's story. Isn't that wonderful? You are magnificent. You are a rock star. And I hope we see that in this story. So Ruth, it starts out once upon a time. And just a little background, Ruth was not born into faith. I really relate to Ruth in this. Um, I was, um, didn't have a, a, a spiritual heritage necessarily. I was raised in a Lutheran home, but um, it was really, we just went and showed up. I didn't understand anything about Jesus. When I, when I found Jesus, I went uh, then graduated from high school and went to a Bible college called Christ for the Nations Institute. And, and that was back in the late 70s. And oftentimes at that school, they would bring like generations up. You know what I mean? Like, like here's this person's kid. That, here's a, this person was a missionary and their grandma was a missionary. And here's this kid, they're gonna be a missionary. And, and I always just felt so like left out. You know, like, wow, I'm way behind in the race, you know, because I don't have that heritage. And Ruth, this book is so encouraging to me because none of us are left out in God's story. So, you know kind of how the story goes, that it opens up once upon a time, and there was Ruth and Naomi and Orpah, her her second daughter-in-law, and Ruth and her husband and her sons had lived and, and moved away to Moab, and they'd lived there for the next 10 years. And her sons took wives there, and they were foreigners. So Ruth, so even Naomi starts out in this story as she doesn't belong, you know. And the the Moabs were, um, they worshiped false gods. They uh, demanded uh, sexual immorality. There was child sac- sacrifice. I mean, talk about being in a strange foreign land. And she would, and, and so these, these women married her husband and, and it. the story goes that really they, Ruth was barren because there's no children here. And then, um, Sadly for Naomi, her husband dies, she leave, you know, both of her sons pass, and, and she's there, and, and she's alone, and she had really loved these daughters. And so it goes on in the story and says, one day she got herself together, she and her two daughter-in-laws, to leave the country of Moab and set out for home. She had heard that God had been pleased to visit his people and to give him food give them food. And so she started out from the place she had been living, she and her two daughter-in-laws with her on the road back to the land of Judah. So Naomi is going back to her roots. She's been derailed in life. First, she moved there with her sons. They They took foreign wives. And who knows whether in the beginning she was happy about that or not, you know, Have you had one of your children get married? And in the beginning, you thought, "Mm, I don't know if I'm happy about that or not. I mean, sometimes we are. Sometimes the story goes that way and life is derailed and it doesn't go like we really want it to. But she must have found a way to love these daughter-in-laws because she's taking them back with her. And after a short while on the road, Naomi looks at them and she says, go back. She must have almost been overcome with... Either, I, I'm not sure, and I love putting myself in these stories just to kind of imagine that she must have either been overwhelmed with a sense of responsibility, and she didn't want to be responsible for them, or maybe a sense of even compassion for them, that they were leaving what was familiar for them. But either way, she, she blesses them, and, and she tries to get them to go back, and um and, and then she even, she's even really gracious, and she says, may God give each of you a new home and a new husband, and she kissed them, and they're all crying, and, and then they turn to her, and they say, no, we're going on with you to your people. Now, I think when the book of Ruth is shared that Naomi kind of really gets a bad rap when we tell this story, and I'll, and I'll talk about that even more as we go on this morning, but these women loved their mother-in-law, so she must have done something right because they are weeping and not wanting to leave her. And she's firm, you know? And, um, and then you see, start, you, you, you see come up in Naomi some of what comes up in each of us when life doesn't go like we have it planned, and, it, you know, the train goes off the train track, and you wonder, where am I going to end up? And is there anybody, you know, in the, front, in the front car driving this thing? And she says to them, go back. Why would you come with me? Do you suppose I still have sons in my womb who, I, who can become your future husbands? Go back on your way please i'm too old to get a husband why even if i said there's still even if i was there there's and said there's still hope this very night got a man and had sons could you imagine waiting for them to marry them because we know in those days that's that's what was your lot if you were uh, a woman who lost your husband. You had to wait for a kinsman, a family member, to come and marry you. And, and she, just, she just says, no, this is a bitter pill for me to swallow, more bitter than for me than for you. God has dealt me a hard blow. I, I think Naomi is emotionally healthy at this point, to be honest with you. I, I just disagree with, some, because she's just out there with it. She's just honest, you know, why do we pretend and stuff it all down there and act like it's not there? She's just saying, God has dealt me a bitter, a bitter blow. And again they cry, and Orpah kisses her and says goodbye, but Ruth would not leave. That stubborn young lady would not leave Naomi. And Naomi says, look, your sister-in-law is going back. Go home. Go, go, go. And Ruth won't do it. And she says these these famous verses that I I actually put these in my wedding vow to Mike. I was young. I I don't think I really got it all. But I put them in there anyway. And then I had to live them afterwards. But it says, (laughs) Ruth said, don't force me to leave you. Don't make me go home. Where you go, I go. And where you live, I'll live. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I'll die. And that's where I'll be buried. So help me, God. Not even death itself is going to come between us. That's salvation. That's surrender. Ruth is laying everything down to follow Naomi. Naomi gets a bad rap. What kind of mother-in-law elicits love like this from a daughter-in-law? She saw through Naomi's honesty. And so they go home, and they go back to Bethlehem. And, um, and when they arrive in Bethlehem, you know, it's, it's all the buzz. You know, everybody's talking about it like snow in April in Duluth. You just can't stop talking about it, you know? And, and it's just all over. It's on the Facebook status. Hey, did you hear? Naomi's back, and she brought her Moab daughter-in-law with her, you know? And when they're going to get grain, they're whispering over at the site about it. And, and what do, how, does, how does Naomi greet all this buzz, you know? She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. The strong one has dealt me a bitter blow. I left here full of life, and God has brought me back with nothing but the clothes on my back. Why would you call me Naomi? God certainly doesn't. The strong one ruined me. And I bet, boy, now that's not a Facebook status. That's the private messaging. You know, I was downtown today, and you should have heard Naomi. She's really in a bad place, you know. And so Naomi was back, and Ruth, The foreigner was with her, it says, back from the country of Moab. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Here is Naomi back home with people who love her and support her. And she's blinded, completely blinded by her memories. And she's unable to see that Ruth, who's standing right beside her and right in front of her. Because sometimes in life, pain and bitterness and unforgiveness just come and they raise their head and they blind us. And we need people who, like in Galatians 6.2, it says that come alongside us and they bear one another's burdens. And that's what Ruth came with Naomi to do. She came to bear her burden, not carry it alone. But they both bared part of that burden. Even though you think Naomi's not, she is. Because she's bearing it every time she gets it out of her. And it's coming out and it looks ugly. But Ruth was beside her. How do you bear somebody's burdens when it's ugly and nasty? You're there. Your presence is there. You cry with them. And sometimes you're silent with them. And sometimes you just say... I'm not going anywhere. When they try their best to push you away, you just sit in silence. You know, Job's comforters got it right at first. They traveled for days, they left everything, and they sat with him. They may have talked too much at one point in that, but they showed up and they were there with their presence. And that's what Ruth was for Naomi. So I think I'm, I, I, I'm taking, you know, I'm not translating, okay? I'm not Derek Morphew standing up here giving an exegesis. I'm putting myself in the story, all right? So I'm just, that's my disclaimer right there. But I think that, I think that in this next second chapter that Naomi must have been in such a deep depression. Have you ever been with somebody clinically depressed? One of my adult sons went through a clinical depression. It is the most heartbreaking thing to sit with somebody through. I mean, he, he had just had his first um, son, Henry. Henry wasn't in those pictures. I'll show you Henry tonight. It's worth coming back for. And, um, and I, I think Henry was just a couple months old and he had gone to see the doctor. He came back and I, I went to hand him Henry. He, he could only hold him for two or three minutes just had to give them back to me and walk away. It is heartbreaking to be in that kind of darkness. And we do not judge when people fall into darkness like that. I don't even care if you think all their sin and everything else, put them in there. We don't judge that kind of darkness. We bring the light of Christ like Ruth did with Naomi and we sit with them. We don't try to fix them. That's God's job. And he is big enough to fix any darkness in this world. He drags it into the light. And the light is always stronger than the darkness. We just have to be patient enough to sit with people until the light comes. And I think that's what happened. And so it says, one day, Ruth. And I love this in the message, it says, the more the, the Moabite foreigner, there she is, just labeled again as a foreigner. She doesn't care, she, you know. And she says to Naomi, I'm gonna go to work. You know, somebody has to, right? Another thing you can do when people fall in the darkness is just, hey, go, go do their garden. Go wash their dishes, you know. Just do what has to be done because they can't do it. So she says, I'm gonna go to work. I, and I'm going to go out and I'm going to glean among the sheaves, following after some harvester and, and who will treat me kindly. And Naomi says, go ahead, dear daughter. This was real danger for Ruth. This was risky business because she didn't belong in those fields. She was a foreigner. She didn't really know anybody, but she knew what she had to do, and she loved her mother-in-law. And so she sets out, it says, and she started gleaning at the field, following along in the wake of the harvesters, and eventually she came to a part of the field owned by Boaz. And um, her father-in-law... Lamelex relative. Now, on these some of these names I'm going to tell you I'm going to be like my way's navigator who last night when we were going home with Melissa told me to turn right on H Illiside Road, which was Hillside Road. I'm going to pronounce these names like ways. I still found my way, but that's if a computer can mispronounce, I certainly can't. So, okay? So, and And so later, I love this part i 'm throwing this part in for free just because I think it 's cute. It says um, uh, uh, later, Boaz came out from Bethlehem greeting his harvesters, and he said, "God be with you and they replied, and God bless you and I wrote in my Bible blue collar liturgy right <laughs> I like that. I think factories might be a happier place if the if the man, if the boss walked down and said, "God be with you, and the workers said, "You know, and God bless you so Later my grandkids can read that, and I hope they know what it means, but anyway, so she's in this field, she's experiencing blue-collar liturgy, and we know how it goes, right? She's noticed. Of course she's noticed, right? Why do you think, I mean, first of all, she probably didn't look like anybody else. The color of her skin must have been a little bit different. The shapes of her eyes were different. You know, she might have been part of that culture shock, Cindy, that you you know, felt at first. And she was noticed, I think, just because of who she was, because of how she worked. And and then Boaz's kindness and care comes out, the integrity of who he was when he says, Listen, my daughter, from now on, don't go to any other field to glean. Stay right here in this one and stay close to my young women. Watch. Where they are harvesting and follow them and don't worry about a thing. I've given orders to my servants not to harass you. When you get thirsty, feel free to go on and drink from the water buckets that the servants have filled. And, and I, just, I just love this. And, and so she drops to her knees and, and, and is amazed at how does this happen that you've picked me out and you treat me with kindness when I'm a foreigner. Wow. Wow. What a picture for us, right? Think what would happen in the world if we just treated the people who didn't fit into the church or didn't fit into our lives or, or we even think don't even fit into our own family. I felt that way about a couple of my kids just to let you know at a time. And, and, and if we treated them with the kindness and respect and love that Boaz treated Ruth, what would happen in our lives? And, and I just see this beauty coming out of her and and boas answers her and he says god reward you well for what you've done and with a generous bonus beside from god to whom you've come seeking protection under his wings and and we see the humility in both their lives that he you know that it's all over town how she's loved naomi you know it is it's all over it's all anybody's talking about and you know naomi's you know I don't know, maybe they're saying she's on her fat caboose, lazy, depressed, and there's her daughter-in-law out working. I don't know, but her reputation has gone before her and God is rewarding her for that. And I love down in the chapter, it says, Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, and when she thrust out what she had gathered, she ended up with nearly a full sack of barley. She gathered up her gleanings and went back to town, and she showed her mother-in-law the results of her day's work. She also gave her the leftovers from her lunch. Boaz had shared her lunch, and she brought her leftovers home to Naomi. You know, I, I like to say this about my life. And, I, and, and Mike laughs at me, and I think he, he kind of gets it now, but, you know, I, I say, you know, I'll just take the crumbs under the table, Jesus. Do you ever get so hung up in, why didn't they pick me? You know, or why doesn't somebody notice me, or why didn't I get picked for that job? And, you know, I just decided that one day that, you know, I, I read that parable where, you know, the person says, even the dog gets the crumbs under the master's table. And I thought, yeah, you know, those are pretty good tr- crumbs. If they fall from a master's table. And, you know, I have found that eating the crumbs from the master's table is so full to me that I have enough to bring my lunch home and feed whoever's waiting for the, me, just like Ruth brought the, the leftovers home to Naomi. The crumbs are enough if that's all we get. And I know that we get more. But God is so good that even his crumbs fill us to overflowing. And Naomi perks up, right? Naomi says, why, God, bless that man. God hasn't quite walked out on us after all maybe she's coming out of her darkness a little bit right ruth is is doing what naomi can't do for herself and just like job naomi is starting to see god's goodness she's waking up and she's seeing that god is good and so Ruth keeps gleaming, uh, gleaning from the fields all through the season. She brings the food home. Naomi is being nourished. And you know, just a side note about darkness, you know, maybe even just the physical rest for Naomi. You know, when you fall into a dark time, your body, I mean, sleep is there for a reason. And, and it restores us and renews us. And then Naomi's eating and she's being nourished. And little by little, she's being healed and she's seeing that God is good. So, one day, Naomi comes and um, she says to Ruth, My dear daughter, isn't it about time I arranged a good home for you so you can have a happy life? So Naomi is being a great Jewish mother-in-law. She's <laughs> arranging her daughter-in-law's life. And, um, and... So you know that she's coming out of the depression because she's right there now. She's taking control again, right? And I love this part of this story, right? So this is how I picture it. I'm in chapter three somewhere, and I just picture this old withered hand taking this young, beautiful hand of Ruth and she's holding her hand and Naomi's looks like mine her fingers are a little crooked she's got liver spots on the top of it there's wrinkles there and she's patting that beautiful hand and then she starts to say okay take a bath put on some perfume, get all dressed up and go to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you're there until the party is well underway and he's had plenty of food and drink. You know, this is the first small instructions in the Bible, right? And and you know, I, I, I'm not good at this. And I and I'll get into more of that in a little bit. I, I, I have five boys and then I got the girl and, and when Alyssa was born, she was my only surprise pregnancy and I had her at home and when she was born, after about five minutes, the midwife looked at me and said, Sherry, say something, because Mike was going nuts, you know, and the boys had been praying for a sister and I, and I had told them, stop, you know, that, you know, that is impossible. And, and yes, I did tell them that. And, and she said, say something, and all I could say to her was, Could you just check one more time? <laughs> I just still could not believe it. And and I'm not very good at frou-frou dress-up stuff. So I'm impressed here that Naomi is, you know, coming to it and she's being, you know, Ruth's personal, you know, shopping person, telling her how to gussy yourself up. That's what we say on the farm, gussy up. And and, and go and, and what to do. And so she says, you know, when you see him sleeping off to sleep, watch where he lies down and then go there. Lie at his feet. Let him know that you're able to hear him, uh, able to, you're available to him for marriage, and then wait and see what, what he says. He'll tell you what to do. And here's Ruth again, right? If you say so, I'll do it, just as you've told me. She is a gutsy woman, Ruth. That's a, you know, this is a really risky thing to do, you know, and, and she's, and she's, she's risking rejection. She's putting herself in danger, but there again, this love for Naomi, and I think, I think that Ruth was introduced to the goodness of the God of Israel, and she saw that he was good. So we know the story, right? Boaz does eat and drink his fill and he goes to lay down and Ruth comes in and lays by him and he notices there her there and says, who are you? And Ruth says, I'm your maiden. Take me under your protective wing. You're my close relative. You know in the circle of covenant redeemers, you do have the right to marry me. I'm telling you, that is putting it all out there, isn't it? That is risk. That is expanding the kingdom (laughs) and not knowing how it's going to end. And he says, God bless you, my dear daughter. What a splendid expression of love. And you could have had your pick of any young men around you. He knows what a treasure this woman is. I'll do all you could want or ask. Everybody in town knows what a courageous woman you are, a real prize. And so we know that the story goes on and that um, he protects Ruth and he tells her, no one must know that you've come to the th- to the uh, threshing floor. And so he makes this plan to send her shawl filled full of barley t- and sends her back to Naomi. and And I love how he says, you can't go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. I love that. You know, that's the heart of God for all of us. You know, wherever you go, just don't go empty-handed. Who cares if it's leftovers from the field or crumbs from the master's table? Just take what you got. Just don't go empty-handed because there's a kinsman redeemer ready to fill your sack up again, right? That's what I see in this story. And so Naomi goes, and we know how it goes, that, that uh, Boaz, Boaz has to offer her first to the other relatives, but knows that they probably won't take, it, take her because that means she has rights to what they have, and he follows everything just directly like, like he should. And so we go later in the chapter, and... Um, Boaz then has addressed the elders when this other relative has given up his rights and he's in the town square and he's saying, you're my witnesses today. I'll take her as my wife and keep the name of the deceased alive along with his inheritance. The memory and reputation of the deceased is not going to disappear out of this family or from this hometown. To all of this, you are all witnesses this very day. God is not just redeeming us ever. He's never just bringing us alone out of our black hole. Your life is irreplaceable in the chain of redemption for the people that went before you and the people that come after you. God is always redeeming. And and you play a part in it. Brenda can't take your place. Nancy can't take your place. Janice can't take your place. You are irreplaceable in God's grand story. And And I think this is a great speech that just says that. And then we're all witnesses to this redemption. If we're not playing a part in the redemption in someone's life, we're a witness to the redemption happening all around us. And all the people in the town are saying, yes, we are witnesses. May God make this woman who is coming into your household like Rachel and Leah, the two women who built the family of Israel. Do you know what that statement is? This is a Moab woman, and she is being welcomed. This is changing history. This is God for all people, for all nations, no matter what color their skin is, no matter where they've come from, no matter what their past is. That's who this little Ruth, who stuck with her mother-in-law through depression and darkness, who risked everything, She is the open door for God, for all people, for all time. That's why you're irreplaceable. You are part of that story of God for all nations, for all people. This is some of the most beautiful pieces of the Bible. And do you know where Ruth came from? Do you know who her relatives were? Lot was one of her relatives, Think Sodom and Gomorrah and God puts her in this story. Don't you ever think that because you can't line four generations of missionaries up on the stage that you're not part of God's great story. And there's not, hey, you need to rejoice if you're part of a line of four missionaries. I'm not knocking that, you know. I want my kids to come and honor me and I want all that stuff. I want it all, you know. But I'm just saying if that's not your thing, don't you count yourself out and we know how it goes right they got married Ruth had a son you know Ruth was she was most likely barren she was married all those years and, and never had a child she's redeemed and brought into the family and the gift of life is there barrenness is over you see when you accept your place in God's story barrenness is over If you're wanting somebody else's story, you'll just go on being barren. But if you'll accept God's story in your life where you're at, the barrenness is over. And I I love this in the message. The town women said to Naomi, Blessed be God, he didn't leave you without a family to carry on your life. May this baby grow up to be famous in Israel. He'll make you young again. He'll take care of you in your old age. And this daughter-in-law who has brought him into the world and loves you so much, why, she's more worth more to you than seven sons. Look, that is a big, big statement back then. You know, once we were traveling uh, from England back to America, we had all six of our kids, and and we were flying El Al, the Israel airline. I don't think it's even in operation anymore. And, you know, we were coach. We had all, all this luggage and all these kids making all this ruckus, and we were in the back of the line. There were 20 people in front of us. And a man came, and he said to me, and he counted the five boys. He did not count Alyssa. He counted the five boys, and he said, These are your sons? And I said, yes. And he said, all of them? And I said, yes. He goes, you come to the front of the line. (laughs) This is a big statement. She's worth more to you than seven sons. And I love this. Naomi took the baby and held him in her arms, cuddling, cooing over him, waiting on him. Hand and foot, the neighborhood women started calling him Naomi's baby boy. Oh, the promise of life. You see, I think Naomi and Ruth became this kind of women, and this is the kind of women I want us to be. I think they became the kind of women that when they woke up in the morning, the devil said, oh, crap, they're up. (laughs) Before their feet even touched the floor. That's what we can be. That's the kind of women that we can be. Naomi, Naomi saw God's redemption, but only because Ruth gave up everything she had to follow Naomi. She gave Naomi complete access to her life. You have a sheet in your notes that has some blanks right here. And I'm gonna try to say some names. And I want you to write them down with me as I say them. So on the top part, on the top line, write, Perez, and then Heron, and next Ram, and then next Aminadab. I don't know how Waze would say that one, but my GPS... And next, Nation Salmon Boaz, Obed, Naomi's little boy, Jesse, and David. That's the family line of Jesus. That's what Ruth's love for Naomi did for us. And that family line set in place that God is a God for all people, for all nations, for all time. Ruth and Naomi were irreplaceable in this story. Underneath this, you have some lines, and I'd ask if you just go down to the middle, and if you'd put your name in the middle of those empty lines down there. Just find any place you want and put your name there. And then I want you to just take a minute, and I want you to above your name write the people who who were part of your story, who loved you in the darkness, who risked something to tell you about Jesus or to ask you when you were going to surrender to Jesus and you thought they were nuts and didn't get it, and they kept asking you, write Melissa over and over again. I got to hear a story on the way in this morning. Just write their names there. And under your name, take some time and write, who's going to come after you? Who are you risking looking like a fool for? Leaving what's familiar for? So here's how this principle of an irreplaceable life has worked out in my life. I was born um, to a farm family in a little town called Watsika, Illinois, south of Chicago. We lived in a white clapboard farmhouse, and we had pigs and cows and sheep. And I rode a horse to um, to uh, grade school, and I would put a bag of oats and tie him there and ride him home at night. And and from the outside, it looked like uh, like a Hallmark movie almost, you know? I mean, but on the inside, we were just a sad family. I was the youngest of eleven children. and my mom and dad, when they had me, sat down at the, coffee ta- at, at the kitchen table over a cup of coffee and just cried because they didn't know what they were going to do. And who can blame them? <laughs> and um, so uh, my dad was an alcoholic, and, um, and my mom was just really clinically depressed and had one nervous breakdown after another. And um, there was just so much abuse, and my dad was the kind of alcoholic that by day he was a farmer that everybody loved in town, and at night he was at the at the bars and the happy life of the party, and then by the time he got home, he was a violent alcoholic. So it was nothing to just wake up in the middle of the night and, you know, um, you know, he, he would be beating my mom or tearing the house apart, and, you know, my mom had trained me, she had lung problems, and so she had half a lung removed, and I, and I, I just, at very young, my mom had instructed me if I ever, you know, if, if daddy's mean to mommy, and if she ever bleeds out of her mouth, you need to call, you know, 911 right away, and showed me how to do it, and and that actually happened one night, and I went to call, and my dad ripped the phone out from the wall, and, you know, because he knew what I was going to do, and and that was life to me it was it was it was normal in a way and and you know and that was in the '60s you really didn 't talk about stuff like that then and on top of that I, I I had three brothers who just just regularly sex you know sexually molested me and and you know nothing you could do would really really stop it. I mean, when I got older, I, I put locks on my door and they'd just break those off or, or they'd crawl up the TV antenna outside my my bedroom window and crawl in through the window. And I went home recently because my brother has that house now and there is actually still one more lock on my bedroom door. And I, I took it a picture just to remind myself of how free I really am. And um, so in in that... I had tried to kill myself once when I was six. My mom had just suitcases full of pills, and I had been warned that those could hurt me. And I, much to my disappointment, I lived. I tried again when I was 14, still didn't do it. I mean, I was just a mess. I couldn't even, you know, I couldn't even kill myself, right? <laughs> and so when I was 14, we went, we went to a Lutheran church faithfully every Sunday. I, I, I just didn't get it. I mean, I thank God for it now because there were so many seeds being planted in my life. then. I even went through catechism. I was just drunk and hung over every time I went to catechism class. Because like a true alcoholic's child, I was never going to drink. And by the time I was 13, I was drunk in a ditch and didn't know how I got there. And I didn't even know what I did the night before. You know, so not only, I mean, do you see just how it goes? You know, the dark hole we get into. And so... There was a Baptist group coming into town doing revivals, and, and they wanted counselors, you know, like Billy Graham crusades from all the churches. And so my mom got this idea that at 14, it would be good for me to be a counselor, What was she thinking? You know? But I love my mom because she was, she was, she was so depressed and everything else. But, but she was my, you know, like the thing I clung to, like the only thing, the only one that touched me without wanting something in return. I mean, she was everything to me. So I went. So, and I went to the first counselor training, and this guy comes up to me, it's the 70s now, and he goes, Hey, Sherry, I'm Brother Chuck. And I thought, you are a creep. Because, I mean, like brother? I mean, to me, the word brother? Oh, give me a break, you know? And so I, I went through all those meetings faithfully for mom. I remember the first night was the Good News Circle. I don't know if anybody has Baptist backgrounds. but And, and I, I sat way up in my high school gym in the top because I just didn't want to be there. And... Um, they, they sang songs about Jesus, and they talked about this Jesus that loved you, and they gave the altar call, and I'm telling you something, I ran down the steps. I knelt right in front, I, and I, I, I'm not sure they knew what to do. Nobody told me to kneel, but I was like, Ruth, I'm going wherever you go. If everything you just sang and talked about is true, I'm all in, and and so it just it just changed my life, just finding out that Jesus loved me, that he was there for me. And you know, it didn't change necessarily so much what would happen at home, but it changed my life. And I started reading my Bible and um talking to my mom about Jesus and praying with her. And then I read, um, oh, what's the guy's name? Uh oh, he he wrote uh, He he wore white cowboy boots and sang all the time. Pat Boone wrote a book about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so I would read that book, Locked Behind My Locks at night, and then he wrote, you know, he read how you just open your mouth and start to pray in tongues, and so I did that. And my mom slept in a bedroom next to me, and I went, and I woke her up, and I went, Mom, listen to this, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And I I don't know if she thought I was drinking again or whatever, but she goes, I'm just so glad you're happy, honey. That's all she said, you know. (laughs) And, and so along, along, the, along the way, I started to get bold. So once I went down and I talked to my dad and I thought, you know, I'm going to be courageous for Jesus. And so I told my dad, I just said out loud everything we all knew that was secret, right? And I just said, this is what my brothers are doing to me. And, and you know, dad, they have to go or I have to go because it's not right. And, and I'm, I'm only, by then I was 16, I'm only 16 and I, I don't have anywhere to go. And, and he just looked at me and said, you know, that's your fault, Sherry. That's not your brother's problem. That's your problem. And I just thought, wow, you know, where do, you know, what am I going to do? And, and I had been studying and reading the scriptures and, you know, I had found that scripture, Jesus, the name above all names, and so that, that night, my brother came in my room, and, and I just sat up, and I thought, well, you know, what, what can I do? And, and so I just, I just yelled, Jesus! And, and he just looked at me, and then, and then I thought, that's a good sign. So then I just started going, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus! And he just, it was like all the power in his body went out. He turned around, and he walked right out of my room. And he came back night after night, and I would sit up, and I would scream, Jesus. So yes, at my church, I am the old lady on the front row, and sometimes when I worship, I scream, Jesus. And I'm sure the visitors in my church think it's completely inappropriate. (laughs) But sometimes when I worship, I just remember how powerful that name is right Jesus, 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 and I just can't contain myself, and it slips out, and Mike tolerates it. (laughs) (laughs) So, fast forward, um, you know, I, 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 I graduated from high school early. I left. I never looked back. I never wanted to go there. I met Mike at Bible College. We got engaged. I tried to break our engagement when I realized that being engagement that you had to sleep with your husband. And I just knew that, you know, like, I can't do that, you know. And so I just, I had, a, I already had my ring and we told everybody and I just said to Mike, you know, we can't get married because I don't think I can, I, I really love you, but I don't know if I can do that, you know. And um, Mike was quiet for a long time and then he just looked at me and he said, I just love you and I can't live without you, whether you can or can't, I want to marry you. That is a really good aphrodisiac by the way. so we got married, and we had six kids, <laughs> and, uh, and we planted churches, and God was good, and Mike, um, most of our ministry life, we have been bivocational. We have not made all our money from pastoring, and most of the time, we work full-time and get paid to pastor, and Mike would be a carpenter. He'd get one week's paid vacation, and you know what he would do, make me do on our vacation? He would drag me back to that farm, and I would say, I do not want to go back there and not for my vacation. And he would just tell me over and over and over again, Sherry, the light is stronger than the darkness and we are going back. And I thank him for that. He drugged me back there and we loved our family. And, um, my mom passed away when I was 21. I was in my 30s. My dad was in congenial heart failure. And we went back again. And, and we went back for two weeks this time because my older siblings were taking care of him. He wanted to die on the farm. And so we went back for two weeks to take our turn. And when we went home in the farmhouse, my kids thought it was just fun. But it was really, really, to be honest, it was my fear. I always made us sleep on the living room floor, like lined up like cubs in a, you know, den. And I was uh, taking care of my baby cubs. And, and that way, if, you know, Mike was on one side and I was on the other because I just wanted to take care of them. And so in the, in one night, my dad was stirring, and he called Cherry, Cherry. He, I don't know. You know, they named me Cheryl. They called me Cherry, and my dad called me Cherry. You know, I don't know. <laughs> bipolar? I'm not sure. But anyway, he called Cherry. And so I went in. He, he needed to go to the bathroom. I set him on the potty chair. He got back in bed. And I sat beside him, and I I started to talk to him. And you know, God had done so much healing in my life, and I I really feel like I had forgiven my dad, but as I sat there and I started talking to him, something rose up in me again. And so I started going every which way I could, being that 16-year-old girl again, because by God, This old man was on his deathbed, and he needed me to go to the pot. And it was about time he admitted what happened to me. Right? I swallowed a bitter pill, and you're going to admit it. And I went through the back door, the side door, the front door, and he he just wouldn't give. There was no giving, you know? And I felt the resentment and the anger and the hatred rising and rising inside of me. And then suddenly, like Naomi, I came to my senses and I felt like God was tapping me on the shoulder and saying, Oh, Sherry, this is not what this is about. This is not about you, this is about Him. Look at this man. For such a time as this, you are here on his bed. So I took his crooked hand in mine, and I started patting his hand, and I felt the supernatural love and hope of God flow through my life and I looked out behind me at these six kids asleep on the floor with a husband who has been nothing but loving and wonderful to me my whole entire life. He's a little OCD, but I can tolerate that. And, and I just started talking to my dad, and I started saying... I just started trying to think of Cindy every good thing that I could possibly remember. I was doing something in my brain, wasn't I? And I started to say, Dad, I remember when you took me to the store and you showed me how to pick out the good cut of meat, that it's not always the expensive one. And I remember that you bought me cocoa so I could ride him to school every day. And and I remember that every time I called you and said I was pregnant, you didn't make fun of me, but you you received each one of my kids with such joy. And, and I felt honored by that. And I... And then I told him, you don't have to worry about the bad things that happened to me when I grew up because Jesus has been good to me and he's healed me. And I understand that you did the best you could. And I felt so free and so released and I felt so on this list of names like this is why I was there at that moment and so I just went for it and I said dad Jesus loves you too he always has he loves you he's waiting for you can we pray will you what you just receive is forgiveness you can know right now today and you know he looked at me and he goes nope and I just thought wow you are a tough old bugger <laughs> and and so anyway, I just sat there for a while. I held his hand. He fell asleep. We got up. That was the last night I was there, actually. We got up. We got ready to leave. And we said goodbye. I have a picture of him saying goodbye to Philip and Alyssa. They were just little kids. They sat on his lap. And you know what they did? They started singing, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me this I know. And then they'd stop and they'd go, he does, Grandpa. He really does. And my dad just kept and on the way home in the car, we asked Philip, what did, what did grandpa say to you? And, he, and Philip goes, he said, bye. <laughs> 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 and we laughed and we laughed. And I thought, God, I'm so glad that my kids, I, I, that they loved my dad, you know? We were home only two weeks. My dad lo- died. We went back for the funeral. And um, we buried him in those overhauls. He wanted to be, he was a farmer, and that's, that's what we buried him in. And we stayed behind to go through the house because my mom had already passed, and we went through all our things, and um, and that was hard for me. There was just so many things in that house, you know. And and Mike never left my side. We went through the we went through the whole house. By this time, two of my sisters had accepted Jesus. Uh, my brother-in-law was a- already a Christian. They were all there with us, going through the house, and. When I got to my dad's nightstand, there was a blank check, the front of a blank check there on the nightstand, and from Iroquois uh, bank, Clarency Norder, Roll Route 4, First Trust and Savings Bank, and I turned it over, and this was on the back of that check. It's August 21st. It's the morning after I talked to my dad. To Pastor Mo, please ask the good Lord to forgive me. For all my sins, I think my dad left that note to let us know. You see, there is always hope if we just don't give up. So see, on my card, I'm here in the middle, and my dad is behind my name. And that seems wrong, doesn't it? Because if all we want is justice and what's right, my dad should be at the top but I am irreplaceable in God's story, and he can put any names he wants on the front of my card, on the top, or on the back. It doesn't have to be in my order. And so I just want Brenda to come up as we close this morning. And I was praying about this, and I, and I just felt like this morning, I, I felt like God asked me, Sherry, what do you want for for you and for these ladies? And And one, I want you to know today that you are irreplaceable in God's story. And I want you to know for the people that you love, that you think you failed or that have hurt you, that it's never too late, that we don't give up, that an 84-year-old man who even says no the night before can come to his senses the next day and realize that Jesus is a really good thing. And then I want you to be set free like i 've been set free from hurts and bitterness and things that just weigh us down and that 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 we that we just can 't get rid of or that we 're just too ashamed to let pop back up you know and it doesn 't matter if you think you 've done it once and it pops back up again. You know I have a place in my home because sometimes I have a real problem with my adult kids and my grandkids just really letting go of my concerns and my cares and I put, a, I put a bowl on, on my book table, a little lion that reminds me of Aslan and the Chronicles of Narnia where Lucy says, you know, ass, and, and, and the answer comes that, you know, he is, he is good, but he is not tame. That, that reminds me to be Ruth, to let go, to risk. I have a scripture promise, and sometimes at night when I just can't let go of my concerns... Or if I've been hurt, I'll go and I'll fill that bowl up with water and I'll just wash my hands. And as I do, I just pray and I say, Lord, I, I, just, I just give this to you. I'm not God, you are. And you're not tame, but you are good. And I know that you're good. And I've been hurt and I forgive you. Or I release what I can't change myself. I wash my hands, I leave it all in the bowl, I dry them, I go to bed and I sleep in the arms of Jesus. If you'll stand with us now. There's four bowls up here. If you need to wash your hands and release, let's just be free and let's accept our place in God's story.